Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. And here's Jesus talking to not just the common people of his day, but the religious people of his day, and saying, you know, you're the same kind of generation. You're the same kind of people, evil, degenerate, malicious, wicked, that caused God to destroy Noah's generation. We are putting a wrap on Matthew chapter 12 today as we begin a new message entitled The Prophet Jonah. Now, chapter 12 has been quite a collection of scenes in which Jesus faces harsh persecution from people who should be falling on their face in front of him praying for mercy. His responses are very good for us to consider and to learn from. Matthew chapter 12, we'll be picking up today at verse 38, the title of our message, The Prophet Jonah. At this point, Jesus is in the midst of a serious confrontation with, well, those that should have been delighting in him and just worshiping him. But they've decided he's not only not the Messiah, They've decided he's some kind of imposter and, and actually empowered by the devil. It's a bizarre accusation and Jesus just pretty much continues to be gracious and, and yet at the same time he starts to hone in on some of the absurdity of the things that they were saying. And basically what we're going to cover today in our short study together is the prophet Jonah himself. Jesus calls him a prophet. We're going to talk about some of the implications of that. We're also going to see the twin dangers of R&R. Not rest and relaxation, but religion and reformation. And then finally, we're going to see the preeminence of spiritual, eternal relationships over those that are merely temporal and physical. Well, it all begins with a demand from the religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day, saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Show us something supernatural, they were asking. Now, here's the bizarrety of this to me. They'd seen so much already. I mean, he gave sight to the blind and hearing to the deaf and the lame were leaping and demons were cast out and multitudes were fed and he walked on the water and these guys come up and say, could you do something supernatural? Listen, that's all he was doing were things supernatural. But they're really not interested in the sign. In fact, a few chapters on, and he'll have the same response then as he has here. They say, show us a sign from heaven. After all the experience from him and saw of him, they still were playing games with him. And really, they say, show us a sign from heaven. We're told that they might test him. Well, Jesus rebukes him, and, and I kind of like that. It's like, it's wonderful to see how gracious our Lord is and how merciful our Lord and how patient our Lord is. And of course, I always want him to be gracious and patient and merciful with me. But when people are right in his face and accusing him of such things as being in cahoots with the devil, well, it's kind of nice to see Jesus get in their face a bit. And he does. He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Later, he'll flat out say, you're of your father, the devil. But for now, he says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. And no sign will be given except that of the prophet Jonah. 
For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As they make their demand, Jesus rebukes them. He describes them as a generation that was both evil and adulterous. The word evil there actually means degenerate or malicious. It's translated wicked in verse 45. And and I was thinking about Noah's generation, where God looked and saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that the thoughts and intents of his heart was evil continuously. Well, most of you were aware, of course, God flooded that generation. He destroyed that generation. And here's Jesus talking to not just the common people of his day, but the religious people of his day and saying, you know, you're the same kind of generation. You're the same kind of people, evil, degenerate, malicious, wicked, that caused God to destroy Noah's generation. There's something for us, though, and it's over in, in 2 Timothy 3. And, and if you're fast, you can turn over there with me. If you're slow, just listen on and maybe jot it down and check it out later. But I bring this to your attention because we talk a lot today about all the progress we've made. Hey, and medically, absolutely. I mean, people used to die at 30 or 40 years old, living to be 80 or 90 now. And I'm hoping that goes up just a little further as I get closer to that age. I still got a ways to go. Either Lord extend it or just take me home. Either one would be fine. But, but we've improved medically, scientifically. We've done some amazing things in all sorts of areas. But when it comes to morality, when it comes to spirituality, it doesn't seem like we've made much progress at all. In fact, let me read you what Paul says about the last days, our generation. Know this, and this is 2 Timothy 3, Verse 1, know this, in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, Paul said that's what it would be like in the last days. I would suggest that that's what it's like in these days. That is an apt and accurate description of our generation. So he tells his, back here in Matthew 12, an evil and adulterous generation. Well, Adulterous, it often, and more often than not in Scripture, is to be taken literally. It's talking about immorality, a sexual relationship physically outside of the marriage relationship, the marriage covenant. But here, it's really talking figuratively, and here's why. Israel was guilty of spiritual adultery, of spiritual infidelity. They were made by God, as all of us are. They were chosen by God, blessed by God, provided for, protected, and he chose them to use them, to reach out to the world around them. And instead of blessing the one who made them and blessed them, well, they went after the gift, not the giver. They were into the creation, not the creator. And so he calls them adulterous in the sense that, well, he loved them. And throughout the Old Testament, as you read through the prophets, 
he likened his relationship to Israel to a marriage relationship. So much so that he calls them his unfaithful bride, his unfaithful wife. Now the church is also likened to a marriage relationship. We're told we are the bride of Christ. But it's a much better picture because we're told that he presents us pure and spotless before him in love. Well, James 4.4 then applies this whole concept of idolatry and, and he says, friendship with the world is enmity with God and he who would make himself a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, don't misunderstand. He's not saying we shouldn't be good Samaritans, kind to our neighbors, a blessing to all around us. But he's saying if our heart is on and for and toward the world, he's talking about the stuff, the matter. He's saying, listen, that's that's idolatry. And it puts you at enmity with God. Why? We were created by him and for him. When we worship anything or anyone but him, we become an enemy of him. Well, as it was in Noah's day, and, and it's wonderful as you read through that story, we're told Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah wasn't saved because Noah was more spiritual than other people or more sincere than other people or more special. No, Noah found grace. That word means it was undeserved and unmerited. God reached out and spoke to Noah. Now, we'll give him one thing, and he did it right. Having heard what was coming, Noah believed and obeyed. And lots of people hear judgment's coming, but they don't believe and they don't obey. They don't repent. They don't change. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And these enemies of Jesus, these who were judging him as being of the enemy and from the enemy, Jesus shows them grace as well. Note, he says, no sign will be given except, and then he gives them the ultimate, radical, wonderful sign. He says, except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now, before we consider the sign of Jonah in relationship to the resurrection, and ultimately that's where Jesus is going, I want to say that Jonah turns out to be a double agent when it comes to typology in Scripture. And what I mean by typology is there are many Old Testament pictures meant to teach us, well, New Testament spiritual realities. Perhaps the most beautiful and wonderful of those types, well, one of my two favorites, is when Abraham was instructed to take a three-day journey with his boy, Isaac. And they went on this journey three days to a mountain that God had sent them to. As they began to ascend the mountain, Isaac bore the wood on his back. And going up that mountain, he said, hey, we got the wood, we got the fire, where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham, speaking prophetically, hearing from the Lord and speaking for the Lord, said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. You know, of course, those of you who are students of Scripture, John the Baptist will later identify Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so there it is, the typology, and it's so clear. Three-day journey, Isaac bears the wood upon his back, even as Jesus would well, head out for a three-day journey, bearing wood upon his back. The Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Same mountain range, by the way, where Abraham took Isaac, 
where our Lord would later be crucified. But that's what a type is. It's a reality, a story, a picture, something that happened historically that points us to yet something greater and more wonderful. Well, Jonah becomes that in two ways for us. He's a type of Israel and these religious leaders. Why? How so, you might say? Well, Jonah, if you are familiar with this story, was a prophet of God. One day God gives him an assignment. Go to Nineveh, preach against it. And Jonah thinks about what he knows about the Lord. Now, you don't get all this in chapter 1 or 2, but if you read the relatively short book, you'll find that Jonah knew something about the Lord that completely made him not want to go to Nineveh. And that's the Lord is gracious and merciful and long-suffering. And so what he does is he gets on a ship and he goes the other way. He tries to get as far from Nineveh as he can. And if you're not familiar with the story, God sends a storm. Jonah ultimately is thrown overboard, swallowed up by a big fish. The fish takes him to the shores, spews him out. There he is, bleached, no doubt, from the digestive juices of that great fish. And then he has to take a long walk. See, Nineveh is not at the beach. It's like Chico. There's no beach. Have you noticed? And so he had to walk all the way to Nineveh. And when he gets there, they said, something's up. You see, when you see a guy who's been in the belly of a fish for three days, who's bleached out and no doubt haggard, and he begins to preach, repent, you listen. And that's exactly what happened. See, Jonah went and said, 40 days and you guys are history. And rather he said it out loud, I'm certain under his breath he was saying, and I can't wait to see it. Because he wanted those people dead. He hated them. Well, what happens? They don't die. They do repent. In fact, from the king all the way down to the lowest in his kingdom, they repent in sackcloth and ashes. And then Jonah, in the midst of this amazing, glorious revival, this wonderful move and work of God, he's depressed. He's like, I knew it. I I knew that. That's why I didn't want to come here. You see, Jonah was so proud and self-righteous He was so magnified in his own mind and eyes that he began to think he was worthy of the grace that God had shown him, that he was worthy of the blessings that God had given him. And listen, none are worthy or it wouldn't be a gift to us. If we could earn it, if we could deserve it, he wouldn't have gifted us with everlasting life, with forgiveness, with Jesus. So Jonah becomes then a picture of this very group that was confronting Jesus. Like Jonah, they were self-righteous and proud. Like Jonah, they exalted themselves and, and, well, they pretty much had decided that the rabble around them was unworthy of the blessings that they were receiving daily. And so they pulled their cloaks in tight. Rather than reaching out, they drew a real small circle and made it very difficult to get in. Well, Jonah was the same kind of man, but God used him in spite of himself. And this evil and adulterous generation, represented here by the religious leaders, well, that's exactly what Jesus is getting at. Now, the second picture here, the second type here, has to do with the most wonderful, undeniable, radical sign And that's the sign of the resurrection, the reality of the resurrection. And he says so. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of that great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. It's a type. 
And we don't really know what happened in the belly of that fish. We do know Jonah's prayer. He says, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. That's an Old Testament word for hell. Now, we don't know if Jonah died and went to hell or if he just thought living in that fish's belly was hell. But Jonah was like a lot of people if the second is the case. You ever talk to people who say, I think heaven and hell are just right here. And it's whatever you make of it. No, listen, I want to tell you something. If you're a believer in Christ Jesus, if you're born again of his spirit, this is as close to hell as you'll ever get. But this is nothing like hell. And if you're not a believer and you don't repent and come to faith in him, this is as close to heaven as you will ever get. And I promise you, this is nothing like heaven. You see, this is just the place where we get to make the decision. Are we going to spend eternity apart from the Lord or with the Lord? Are we going to spend eternity grinding our teeth against the Lord? Or are we going to spend eternity worshiping the Lord? And by the way, when we talk about heaven and hell or hell and heaven, since I've been going that direction to this, you need to know those are real places. Jesus said there'd be a resurrection of the just and the unjust. Some to everlasting life, others to everlasting condemnation. And Jesus talked more about hell as a literal place in the Gospels than he did about heaven. They're both real. Well, in any case, Jesus' resurrection makes, well, it gives us hope for our ultimate destination. You see, the Gospel is Jesus died for our sins, he was buried, and he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And there is forgiveness of sin and life everlasting in him. But we got to choose it. we got to accept the gift that he offers. Now, Jesus' resurrection, of course, was prophesied in many ways in the Old Testament. It was also prophesied through the types, like Jonah and, and others. Jesus himself promised that he would rise from the dead, destroy this temple, he says, and in three days I will raise it up. Here, as Jonah, well, so it will be with me. So he promises the resurrection, and then... Well, he provides it. He rises from the dead the third day. He begins to prove it by appearing first to the women, then to some of his disciples, to Peter alone, then to the eleven. And then after time after time, he appears well to those disciples on the road to Emmaus. He appears to 500 brethren at once. Why? He was trying to demonstrate the reality of the resurrection. And so... What he does is he says, look, you're looking for a sign. I'll give you one sign. That sign will be the resurrection, my resurrection. And then he talks about judgment. And ultimately, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection brings about a judgment. Why? There's an offer of forgiveness. It's put on the table. And when we refuse, well, we don't repent. And, and then, well, judgment will come. He says in verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed a greater than Jonah is here. The men of Nineveh, why? Because they repented at the preaching, at the witness of Jonah. And he says, listen, they're going to be in the judgment and they're going to condemn you. Why? Because Israel and these leaders specifically saw so much from the Lord, not just in their history with their forefathers, they saw things no one else had ever seen. They saw the miracles firsthand. They heard the teaching firsthand. And he said, listen, a greater than Jonah is here. He mentions judgment yet another time in verse 42. The queen of the south will rise up in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. 
For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. I made mention of Noah. It says the very same thing about him in his day. Listen. By faith, Noah, and this is Hebrews 11.7 for you note takers. By faith, Noah, divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. You get that? He condemned his generation. How? Because he believed God and obeyed God. And that's exactly what happened with the Ninevites. And that's what happened when that queen came and heard the wisdom of Solomon. You see, the one who believes and responds, the one who believes and obeys, well, God justifies them. That word's one we don't use in the everydayness of our interaction, but it just means God now deals with me as a believer, just as if I'd never sinned. And he does that on the basis of Jesus' sacrifice, his death, his shed blood, for me. And that's a reality for every single believer. Well, he says then judgment is coming and judgment day is coming. And then we get to these twin perils of religion and reformation. There's a spiritual context and I want you to see that because religion is spiritual in nature. The question is, is it always God's spirit and Reformation may or may not include God in it, but there's a spiritual aspect to it. Note how he illustrates this reality. When an unclean spirit, verse 43, goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So it shall be also with this wicked generation. Religion. Why is it a peril? Listen, religion is man's attempt to appease God or please God. And when God looks at religious people who have never experienced regeneration, here's how he describes them. Well, the religious of his day, and get these religious leaders were actually doing things God had ordained. You see, their forefathers were given sacrifices and feasts and festivals and all these celebrations, and they were still going on. The difference being, initially those led people into a deeper and closer relationship with the Lord. They were the basis of approaching him and fellowshipping with him. But now the people are just going through the motions. And so it's no longer about relationship with God. It's just about religion. He called them whitewashed tombs. He said on the outside, looking pretty good. But inside, whew, dead men's bones. It's a picture that, well, they would have all gotten in that day. Alongside many of the roads, people would be buried who died on those roads. And they would cover over, not with a gravestone standing up, but just a stone laying down. And when they were ready to have feast or festivals and multitudes would be coming to Jerusalem for them, they would go out and they would whitewash all those stones. Why? Because the step on a grave would defile you and they were coming to feast. They don't want to be defiled. That renders you unfit for worship, for fellowship, for service. And so Jesus, knowing they were aware, said, listen, you look pretty good on the outside. You're like 
whitewashed tombs. Now, tombs should have been a clue. It wasn't going to be a very good description from there on. And he just says, outside beautiful, but inside dead men's bones. Concerning our righteousness, whatever rightness we might have in the sight of God, apart from that which he imputes to us, well, he says, it's filthy rags. You can't present your own righteousness to God. Why? There are none righteous, he says. No, not one. I remember the saying, I don't smoke and I don't chew and I don't go with girls that do. That's always made me chuckle. But the reality for people who clean up their act as a way to attain righteousness is that no matter how thorough they are when they sweep out their house, if they do not fill it back up with Jesus Christ, it's going to fill back up with things much nastier than what they cleaned out in the first place. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.